Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Though some people dislike the idea, money has become an important daily and complex aspect of our life. Many people choose to invest in stocks and mutual funds, hoping for financial growth with and without guidance from a knowledgeable advisor. Even with 5 million people advising and thus being responsible for the financial interest of others, there is very little regulation or control of what they do or how they do it. Donald B. Trone is the president of the Foundation for Fiduciary Studies, a nonprofit organization affiliated with the Katz Graduate School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh established to develop and promote the practices that define a prudent process for investment fiduciaries. Donald B. Trone will discuss the practical and regulatory environment that defines the roles and responsibility of investment fiduciaries and how one should be chosen to work for you. I spoke with him from his office near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and asked him to begin by explaining what a fiduciary is. who those 5 million men and women are because sure. many of your listeners may actually be serving in a in the role of a fiduciary and not even realize it at this point. Well, I guess we'd better start with uh, a definition of what a fiduciary is. Simply put, a fiduciary is a person who has the legal responsibility for managing someone else's money. So that's going to include members of retirement committees. It's going to include the members of investment committees for foundations, endowments, trustees of personal trusts, and also investment advisors that are providing comprehensive and continuous investment advice to clients. So how does that affect the average person? Well, when the average person thinks about their own net worth, what they're going to discover is that most of their net worth is in the hands of an investment fiduciary. And when I say net worth, liquid net worth. That excludes uh, someone's home or other real property investments. That's correct. So you think about savings you might have in a retirement plan, even personal savings, where you've now given the money to a professional money manager, even put the money into a mutual fund. In both those instances, we're still dealing with this term uh, investment fiduciary responsibility. Then let's look at the obligation or the duty of the fiduciary, the investment counselor. When we look at what's required by the law, we get a sense of the skeleton or the outline of what the fiduciary, what the investment advisor should be doing. What has been missing for a number of years are the specific details uh, that define that job or define that role. The way I describe it is if the law gives us the skeleton, the work that we're doing is to put the muscle, the skin, and the hair on that skeleton and to bring the subject to life. Give us some examples, Don. Probably the best example is what we saw in the late 90s during the dot-com bubble. More and more people were putting a larger percentage of their portfolio into growth stocks or or large-cap growth mutual funds. 
without really appreciating the level of risk they were taking by putting so much emphasis on that one particular market strategy. And so what the law is saying is that if you serve in a fiduciary capacity, you have to be very deliberate in what asset classes you select, uh, what type of strategies you select, and in particular, you shouldn't be chasing a hot strategy just because it's hot in that particular time frame. So in other words, if someone is advising an investor with their own money and the investor says, I want to invest in .com, going back six, seven years now, uh, the advisor should say, be careful, don't do that, you're over your head. Should they write them a letter? Should they say, I won't invest for you? What's the level of the advisor's responsibility to educate the investor? The role of the advisor is to be able to model different allocations and potentially different outcomes and be able to clearly communicate back to the client what the possible range of outcomes could be if they selected that strategy. The range of risk, the possibility of getting a whole bunch of money or losing a whole bunch of money. That's absolutely correct. And by the way, you know, uh, we've, we've been talking about the dot-com, but I, I think we could also update this discussion to hedge funds. I'm very concerned about the number of uh, investors that are getting involved in hedge funds without really understanding the level of risk that they're exposed to. What's a hedge fund? A hedge fund today has um, it, it's taken on a broader meaning than probably its original definition, but it, basically it's become an asset class that represents an alternative investment strategy that doesn't meet conventional definitions. We think about uh, mutual funds, uh, such as a large-cap growth mutual fund. The investment manager is going to be following very traditional strategies in developing or managing that mutual fund. When we start talking about hedge funds, basically we've opened the door and permit the uh, money manager to pursue virtually any investment strategy the manager feels can add additional return to the investment portfolio. Increasing the risk for either an up or down gain or loss. Many times, many times though, uh, the hedge fund managers will say that uh, their particular strategy, because it's not following a normal pattern, actually may reduce the client's overall risk. Well, why are you concerned about the hedge funds? What do you see there as a risk to an investor? Well, I'll answer that two ways. My first concern this has been a concern for years, even before we started to see the increase in the use of hedge funds, is that uh, by definition, the hedge fund is not transparent. In other words, the money manager is not required to disclose to the public how the manager is pursuing investment returns or managing risk. And so the traditional procedures that we would go through to monitor or evaluate a a money manager is not available to us when we look at a hedge fund. The second concern I have, which is more timely, is that we may be in the middle of a hedge fund bubble. All the characteristics of a traditional bubble now exist with hedge funds, and those characteristics are described as the twos. In this case, I'm spelling it T-O-O, the twos. We have too much product coming to market. It's coming to market too soon. In other words, it's not properly vetted or evaluated before it's being made available to the public, and it's too expensive. What is the product that you talk about? Well, the product is this whole 
cachet of uh, investment products that are being brought to the market right now under this this term hedge funds. Well, Don Trone, I want you to define what that cachet is and how our listeners would identify it. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Donald B. Trone, who is the president of the Foundation for Fiduciary Studies the mission of which is to define the practices that detail a prudent process for investment fiduciaries. He's also the co-founder and co-director of the Center for Fiduciary Studies, which operates in association with the University of Pittsburgh's Katz Graduate School of Business. You are listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Don, How would someone identify these products when they hear them advertised or see them? Actually, that's quite simple because there is so much demand from Main Street, from the average investor for the product. The people that are providing access to hedge funds clearly label these products as so. I think it's it's not too difficult to discern when somebody is proposing a hedge fund or an alternative investment strategy to you versus uh, one of the traditional routes. In fact, that's another indication of a bubble. When we look at the long-term history of Wall Street, we see this couple dancing. The couple was made up of Wall Street and Main Street. And almost invariably, while this couple is dancing, they're out of step with one another. But when they do get in step, when Main Street wants to buy what Wall Street has to offer, when the couple is in step, that's usually an indication that we're at the beginning of of an investment bubble. And an investment bubble is uh, something to get out of before it bursts and you lose your investment. That's right. Or another thing that we tell clients is when everybody is talking about making a killing, the market is already dead. How do you know when to get out or stay out? Obviously, if people are talking about making a killing, don't go in. If you have not gotten into hedge funds yet, my advice would be don't go in now. If you're already into a hedge fund... Uh, it's, it's much more difficult to advise when you should consider leaving that hedge fund. Of course, the other thing that we have to keep in mind with many of these hedge funds is that they don't have the same liquidity as, say, a mutual fund. So today, if we decided that we lost confidence in a particular mutual fund, it'd be fairly easy to get on a, one of the internets and actually trade or sell that mutual fund out of your portfolio. That with many of these hedge funds and alternative investments, there's only certain days that the people who put the product together permit you to depart. Contractually, you can enter and leave at a certain time by having given an adequate amount of notice, which should be set forth in large print in the contract. That's correct. And typically, that's, that's only once a quarter. Let's take this uh, conversation to the level of a person who may have, let's say, $10,000. It's either in a bank or in a mutual fund. What should they do with that $10,000 to make it grow? Uh, Say the person is 50 years old. $10,000 today, I would say almost certainly I would stay with mutual funds. Um, I would... um, uh, I would use several different mutual funds, not not just one, which becomes difficult because many of the mutual funds now have uh, opening account size minimums of greater than 10000 But there's still a number of mutual funds that you can get into 
um, with amounts less than that. Uh, I would try to have the portfolio of funds that I put together um, custodied at one place, which makes it easier to provide oversight and to monitor the investment strategy. So whether that's um, going into one of the retail offices of a Schwab or a Fidelity or a Waterhouse or even working through one of the uh, client servicing desks at Vanguard or T. Rowe Price, I think it, it's smarter to keep keep your funds in one place. I would certainly try to develop the portfolio across different strategies. So if I had, uh, say, two equity funds, two stock funds, I have one that perhaps growth, one is value, or one is large cap stocks, and one is small cap stocks. Can you define large cap and small cap? When we talk about large and small, we're referring to the size of the company itself, the capitalization of the company that you're investing in. Examples of large cap would be General Motors, uh, McDonald's. Small cap stocks might be uh, some of the new technology firms that are coming along the line. So by capitalization, you mean the amount of money that the corporation has at its disposal? It's total assets, the capitalization. In other words, if we took all the stock in the company and multiplied it by the value of the current value of that stock, we're going to come up with a valuation of the company. The, the problem is, or the, the challenge is, no one can accurately forecast which part of the market is going to do better versus the other, large cap versus small cap. Kind of like uh, the stock market being the greatest form of legalized gambling in the United States. Unpredictable. Unpredictable, yep. Um, it's um, unpredictable, but the other thing I would, I would say that it's not like gambling. There's an element that's not like gambling. If, if I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a gambler, but... Uh, if I walked into a casino today in Las Vegas and I just happened to pick the right number in the roulette wheel, by luck, I, you know, end up with great performance. In the case of uh, Wall Street, particularly managing a portfolio of stocks and bonds, the likelihood that the average person can outperform a professional money manager is pretty remote. The amount of information that the professional money manager has, the timeliness of that information, uh, their ability to react to that information quickly, all stacks uh, in the favor of the professional money manager, all stacks in their ability to outperform what the average investor can do. I, I personally, even as much as I've studied and, and been in this industry, would never try to manage my own portfolio, and I would never try to pick individual stocks. I always turn investment decisions over to the professional money managers. Well, let's revisit the professional money managers and talk about the regulation of that profession. As I understand it, there is no university or institution of higher learning that provides a doctoral degree uh, for money management. What other sort of learning or regulation is there? Let me uh, further redefine the term money manager, and then I'll, I'll answer your questions there. Within this universe of money managers, there's really two pools or two camps the first is the professional money managers, those who are managing the mutual funds, the large separate account portfolios for the large pension plans and so forth. The second group would be our 
investment advisors, also known as, as investment consultants, wealth managers, financial advisors, financial consultants, private bankers, estate planners. It's the second group that make up these investment advisors that typically do not have the same level of education, training, and expertise as what we see with our professional managers, like the portfolio managers and so forth. In the case of the portfolio managers, they have excellent educational standards. Nearly all of them have MBAs and or have earned uh, the Chartered Financial Analyst designation, which is a very difficult uh, three-year program on security analysis. That's the CFA after some people's names. That's correct. But now when we turn to that second uh, community, the investment advisors and the investment consultants, we absolutely do not see the same level of education and training that we see with our professional money managers. In fact, in most states, a person can set themselves up as an investment advisor or an investment consultant. They're not even required to have a college degree, and the professional license that they have to get only requires about 14 or 15 hours of instruction. In fact, uh, when we provide commentary to people in Washington, D.C., we often talk about the fact that most barbers and beauticians today have higher education and training requirements than investment advisors. How then can an average person protect himself or herself from an investment advisor that is either untrained or irresponsible? It's a challenge, which is why we think the responsibility to protect the public actually rests with the SEC. That's the United States Security and Exchange Commission. That's correct. Uh, actually, in some areas, we've been very disappointed with the SEC that they haven't taken stronger regulatory action to oversee investment advisors and investment consultants to protect the public. Why do you feel they have failed to take that action? Two reasons. The first is when we go back to the actual formation of the SEC back in the 30s, uh, the the SEC was created after the uh, stock market crash of 1929 during the period of the Great Depression. Washington, D.C. was concerned about restoring the public's confidence in, uh, in the stock market in Wall Street. And so the Securities and Exchange Commission was created to help restore that confidence. And when you go back and you read the historical files of what the philosophy was in the creation of the SEC, uh, that philosophy was built on two pillars. The first pillar was that the investment industry would be led by men and women of the highest ethics. The second pillar is that disclosure was going to be paramount in all the regulations. In other words, it was going to be important to be able to disclose to the public the information that the public would need in order to make informed investment decisions. And what we've seen now uh, over time is that both of these pillars have crumbled. We don't have confidence in the ethical standing of our investment leaders, and certainly the concept of disclosure has, is virtually non-existent today. If you want to see an example of what I mean, pick up the prospectus of, 
of the average mutual fund and try to read it. Um, even with a master's degree in business, I have difficulty understanding what the prospectus is saying. And so um, I, I, I think if we're going to restore confidence in the public markets, we've got to come back and, and restore those two pillars that were the basis of the SEC in the first place. Why do you believe there is this national inertia to have a greater control, a greater protection for the average person? Well, we've just come through a period where we've endured a bear market, and perhaps we're still not out of that bear market, but we've seen a significant decline in market valuations from where they were five years ago, coupled with the uncovering of all the industry scandals. And uh, I think the attitude of the average person today is that they're not going to let Wall Street return to business as usual. Uh, Because of the experiences of the bear market and the scandals, uh, the public is looking for Wall Street to come back with a higher standard of care, one that is defined to the client so the client knows exactly what they can hold Wall Street accountable for. Uh, I think the average person today is is turned off by statements from the Wall Street firms that the client comes first. We treat every client one at a time. Every client is unique. The average person today doesn't buy that. But again, why do you think there is the failure of Congress if they would be the ones that would establish the regulations? Why is there the failure to establish the regulations? Well, this comment's not going to make me very popular with a lot of my Wall Street clients, but um, the lobbying efforts of Wall Street still have uh, an impact on Washington, D.C. The other thing I would say is many policymakers in Washington, D.C., whether they're legislators or, or regulators, are insulated within their world of Washington, D.C. They rely upon, quote-unquote, experts to provide them information, feedback on on what the public demands or or what the public needs. And many times the people that surround policymakers, that surround regulators or lobbyists who are paid to communicate to these decision-makers that everything's fine. There won't be any change then until uh, the average person contacts their representative in Congress? I think there's a more effective way, and that's for uh, investors to vote for their feet with regards to the people that they do business with, the investment advisors that they do business with. Clients should make it clear that if their investment advisor is unwilling to serve as an investment fiduciary, in other words, conduct themselves in accordance to these uh, practices that we've been talking about in this interview, they should leave their advisor and look for an investment advisor that is willing to serve as an investment fiduciary. Well, Donald Trone, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious, and I'd like to ask you about another aspect of your life. As well as studying uh, the way money is handled, you're also uh, studying theology. How does the study of theology relate, as you see it, to the study of the way money is handled? Oh, boy, that's a great question. A couple things. Um, the world of Wall Street gets pretty excessive. I, don't, I think that's pretty well accepted by most of your listeners. And so by studying theology and being involved in theology, it keeps my other foot 
on the ground. Uh, it keeps me balanced in my life. Uh, I've seen a number of people, particularly in the investment industry, that have accumulated significant wealth, and even with the significant wealth, it's not enough. And so theology kind of counterbalances that and reminds you that there's more important things in life than just uh, material wealth. But some of the other applications is that we're a blessed nation. As such, we have a responsibility to prudently manage these assets that have been entrusted to our care. Uh, I think the average citizen today in the United States is very conscious of the appropriate protection of our natural resources, like our air or our water. But we need to take that same level of concern with our nation's wealth to make sure that we are prudently managing our nation's wealth, not only for future generations, but for the, for the good of the world as a whole. And once you have received your theological degrees and become ordained, uh, do you plan to integrate those two professions? Um, on an informal basis, I think they're already ingrained in what we do. We do a lot of teaching and speaking around the country on investment fiduciary responsibility. And when someone discovers, either through my biography or just in conversation, that I'm also involved uh, in the study of theology, their comment typically is, oh, that's not a surprise. It, it kind of came forth in the work that you're doing. In a formal way, though, at least at this point in time of my studies, what I plan to do on a formal basis with the theology is to become a uh, prison minister, a prison chaplain. Well, Donald B. Trone, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? I just finished my semester at seminary. The focus this semester was the New Testament. In this case, it was a textbook, which probably most of your listeners wouldn't find of interest, but uh, the textbook was on the New Testament written by Gundry. The author was Gundry. For me, it was a fascinating look into that part of the Bible that I had never really focused on before or didn't give it the degree of focus that it deserved. Donald B. Trone, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure, Barry. Thank you. Donald B. Trone is the president of the Foundation for Fiduciary Studies, a nonprofit organization affiliated with the Katz Graduate School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh, established to develop and promote the practices that define a prudent process for investment fiduciaries. You may visit the website of the Foundation for Fiduciary Studies at www.fi360.com. The book that Donald B. Trone recommends is A Survey of the New Testament by Robert H. Gundry. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. 
The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.